Welcome to Leadership Bites with myself, your host, Guy Bloom. This is a leadership podcast where I have conversations with colleagues, I chat with guests, and sometimes they'll be just me talking. You can connect with me at livingbrave.com. And when you enjoy the episode, subscribe and please tell everyone. Robin, fantastic to have you on this episode of Leadership Bites. Welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So thank you very much for inviting me to be a part of it. Well, um, you know, I've, I've looked at you, yeah, and I say this, you know, from afar, you know, the, the, the powers of LinkedIn, I get to see various characters going across my kind of page. And I was struck by one of your video clips uh, around your book and various things kind of attracted me to you. So I've re- reached out and we've been um, sort of uh, had a few conversations. So I know who you are. Um, it'd be great just to hear from you who you are, what you do and what you currently put your energy into. And then we'll find out a little bit more about you and then we'll come back to present time and, and, and have some more conversation about that. But just initially, Robin, who are you and what do you do? Oh, well, I'll do the, I'll do the, the short version. I am known as being a motivational speaker and a, uh, an author on this on the field of peak performance motivation. Um, and uh, winning is a sort of topic that fascinates me. And I kind of, people ask me, how did I get here? And I, I tell a story that when I was at school, I wanted to do medicine, that didn't work out. I went and did biology, my father died, I dropped out, became a stand-up comedian and a comedy writer. And um, then I, won, I tell the story that I was like 29 years of age and I was in bed one morning and three, four questions popped into my head. And the four questions, well, the first question was, why are rich people rich? The second question is, why are happy people happy? The third question is, why are successful people successful? And most tellingly of all, the fourth question is, why am I none of these three people? <laughs> now, the bed I was lying in, I was a hospital bed. I'd been diagnosed with cancer. I just had surgery for cancer. And I had to wait five days for the results of the biopsies. And I promised myself, if I got out, I'd get the answer to these questions. I would spend my life like that guy from the TV show Kung Fu walking the earth until I got the answer to these questions. And I... That was it. So I started reading. I started um, going to some personal development um, courses I could find in books and things. Um, and then a year and a half later, I was head of entertainment development at BBC Television, which was my kind of dream job. And people said to me, Robin, you've been so lucky. And I thought, I haven't. There was, I was applying principles I'd learned. I left the BBC to set up a training company. And uh, that didn't work out. I just didn't know business. I knew TV. I didn't know business. And then when I was running out of money, a friend of mine said, why don't you give a motivational talk? This was 1997. And I said the famous words, what's a motivational talk? Mm-hmm. And um, that it went from there because I'd been a stand-up comic for seven years in my 20s. Being on a stage wasn't a, a scary place for me. And uh, in a 1999, Random House asked me, did I have a book idea? At the time, there was a film called Natural Born Killers with Woody Harrelson. And I said, yes, I do. And the uh, editor said, what's the name of the book? And obviously, I didn't have a book at the time, but I had lots of ideas. So I said, oh, the book's called Natural Born Winners. And it got published in 1999, went into 22 languages, got turned into a TV show, sold around the world and launched me into an international career as a, a business motivational speaker. More books followed. And now... 20 years later, I'm still fascinated by the, the mental side of winning, peak performance and success in our lives personally and professionally. And I've, in the last few years, written books on golf psychology, and I'm still working on uh, programs to help people be the best version of themselves in a very practical way, not one of those um, sort of very soft, gentle, you know, floaty ways, just very practical, down-to-earth ways that are you know, helpful, I hope, to people. Wow, that's it. That's the end of the that's the end of the podcast, Robin. Thanks very much. <laughs> what, what else do we need to know? <laughs> uh, you know I, well, I can tell you this thing. I hate the I hate the title motivational speaker. You know, I think anyone who speaks on anything should be sufficiently engaging in their topic to in, to move you to want to learn more or do more. And and it's like, could you imagine being introduced as a funny comedian? Uh, next, we have a funny comedian as like, you're a speaker, and if you're really good at your craft. People get inspired, but the notion that you... So I, I kind of always re- pulled back from that. So when people said, well, what are you? I'd go, oh, I'm a success strategist. 
what does that mean? So I, nowadays, I'm just happy to wear any hat people wish me to wear. Very interesting, isn't it? You start off by almost needing a definition or people want to mm. pigeonhole you. But just talking about humor and, and things like that, I once had an exec say to me, Guy, can I just have a word for a few minutes? I said, he said I'd, can you help me with some coaching? I went, you know, of course. He said, um, I'd like to be funnier. And I, I literally, in my mind, I did that face that you've just made. I, you know, I went, uh-huh. And, you know, he was a lovely guy. I said, funnier. He said, yeah, because a lot of my colleagues are really funny and people really listen to them when they're funny. So I want to be funnier. I said, well, I'm, I think I can coach you on that. I said, but can I just ask, what is it, the outcome that you want? He said, well, I, I want to be listened to. Well, we can work on that. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think your point yeah. of, you know, that definition and that the way that we sometimes hold ourselves sometimes is it's th that the language becomes its own problem if that's what I'm really looking for. So that really resonates with me. makes me smile. Uh, it's for me, and it's, uh, so I've just, so after speaking around the world and all these conferences and people say, oh, I'd, I'd love to do what you do. I go, well, you know, it, it's, there's a lot of time and work goes into a lot of your talks. And then, you know, it's, it never gets easier. I used to skydive. I took up skydiving at 49 and terrifying. And the second jump was terrifying. And every jump gets less and less terrifying, but it never stops being scary. Even with hundreds of jumps, as you get ready to go out the door, there's a little party that goes, okay, this could go wrong. You know, just be aware of that. And, you know, and I think after a while, you know, when you do these big conferences, um, you think, oh, you know, it's quite scary sometimes. I do find myself going, gosh, you're walking out in Vegas and around 6,000 people and there's no lecture to hide your notes. And you go, okay, I hope I can, what's the first thing I'm meant to be saying? So, but uh, I'm still fascinated by, and I like working with people one-to-one. Uh, -one. I get, a, I'm sure, as you do, Guy, it, it really um, means a lot to me to know that you're being of, of help, being of service and being mm -hmm. to other people. So for you, those, you know, when we, you know, I always think when I understand the person more, it helps me listen to maybe to the, the message. So in that journey that you've had to get to, to where you were, I said some real sort of particular touch points, but are there any, um, I mean, b b being in a hospital bed, right? That, that's, that's, that's a moment of self-reflection, revelation and commitment to, to self. Are there any uh, people or any books or anything that you go, do you know what? I have a leadership book, for example. I go, that, that's the one that when I read it, it made sense to me. And I just wonder if there are any people that, yeah, it was, it was Jack Smith. Well, I met him or, or that, uh, that book. That, no, that's a great question. Yeah, no, yes. I, there have been people who I've met who, uh, and often they weren't rich powerful people. They're just people that had a great sense of their own confidence. You know, when they said they would walk against the popular tide of opinion. So when everyone was going out and as students, they'd say, nah, I'm, I'm going to go hiking this weekend. And we go, no, no, we're going to go to the rugby. We're all going to drink beers. They go, nah, not for me. I'm going to, and, you, and I thought, as far as books go, you know, people often ask me what books have had the biggest influence. And I, I, I try and think of books I've read more than once. And it's interesting, there's a book written in 1960 by a fellow called Maxwell Maltz, and the book's called Psycho-Cybernetics. And it, I, I truly believe that every personal development book that's come since owes a debt of thanks to that book, because he fundamentally said how you think and what you think determines what you create and how you behave. There's another book called Think and Grow Rich, Written in the 1930s, it was written fundamentally to help people in the Depression who couldn't get work other than commission-only sales jobs. But it's a very, um, it's a book about, again, it all comes back to how we think, how we process. So those are two books which I had a, had a big influence in me. When it comes to books that just inspire you, you know, I used to read a lot of books on adventures or, and I recently read the biography, autobiography of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I now <laughs> recommend to everybody. Right. You know? Another book I recommend to people is a book called Born Standing Up by Steve Martin. Steve Martin, for me, is probably the greatest comedian of the 20th century, not because he was the funniest, because I think there were people that might have beaten him there, but because he invented himself from a man who didn't have a natural sense of humor by his own admission. He taught himself. He said, look, everything I have done, I taught myself to do. I learned to do. And he put himself out there. You know, so... 
on standing up. It's a great book on just, you know, if you want to succeed, this is, you know, how he did it. And I found it very, I've read it two or three times and I really love it. And so there's something there about that. You can, you can do things on purpose. And yeah. it's not, it's so much, it's not so much that you can't be what you're not, but you, you there's a, there's a Bugsy uh, Tyrone, I think his name was, um, somebody will correct me, but basketball player, uh, NBA, uh, and I think he's five, was five foot three or five foot four. And then the average height, six foot four, six foot five in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Now, can you imagine when he went, yeah, I'm going to be in the NBA? People would laughed at. People would have gone, well, how can that happen? Imagine at school when he said that, that, that can never happen. But through sheer force of will, <laughs> you know, people could say, well, you could never be in the NBA, could you? Because you're not tall enough. Well, I'm about six inches taller than that fella, and he was in it for 12, for twelve seasons. But there are those people that just go, "No, I'm, I'm going to do it," and that's it. Yeah, I'm going to teach myself. I was I've, I've just been overseas doing a little workshop, and one of the topics came up was goal setting. And you know, we've all seen these inspirational films where you know, you know, just they give you goosebumps, and you think, "Yeah, I, I, I you know," and it's like the five foot three guy becomes NBA player. And I, the only caveat I ever say to anyone is. Your goal has to be within the realms of possibility. That's all I say. So if yes. this guy said, I want to become the um, the greatest basketball player of all time, you'd have to say, mm, okay, you're up against Michael Jordan there. And do you think you're going to be able to, to, to do what he did? So I always try and, you know, in the old days when I started, I used to be, you can do anything. You can be anything. You can, you know, and I now go, well, you know, okay, let's just wind our necks in a little bit here. Let's be practical. Yeah, so I'm a great believer for realism, but I would never burst anyone's balloon. If someone came up to me and said, "I want to do this," I ask them, "If you if you believe with all your heart and soul that it's possible, then I will not in any way sort of burst your bubble." But if I don't think I can be of service or help you, then so be it. I've got a colleague who um, was a professional cyclist, and I said, well, "Why did you stop doing it?" And he said, "Because I realized once that even though I was good enough to be there, and I was good enough to." you know, be on the Tour de France, et cetera. I realized that it wouldn't matter how good I got. I was never going to be that good. And even me at my best, I could imagine what my best could be. And it wasn't that I didn't have the capacity to imagine me being great, but even the greatest version of me was never going to break through into that upper echelon. So at that point, I had to make a decision. Am I, am I okay being steady state and doing this, you know, or no, I want to go and put my energy into something else. So I do buy into that, you know, being the greatest you can be is, is yeah, in itself. One of, my, one of the most moving things I ever saw on television, 1999 BBC did sports personality of the century. And um, they were going to pick the sports personality of the century. And um, I so happened to two or three days before in London saw Muhammad Ali in a restaurant. And I thought, hey, it's going to be him. It's going to be him. So in the show, they said the sports personality is Muhammad Ali. And he had his Parkinson's. He was a bit shaky, but he got up and you know, did the old this. And they presented him with this incredible award. And they said, Muhammad, we have someone I think we'd like to speak to. And we're going to bring him on. And they went satellite link to George Foreman. And George Foreman was sitting there, you know, this big old bald head just sitting there going, <laughs> and they said, uh, George, you fought Muhammad a number of times. He goes, I sure did. He was a, wow. And this guy turned around and said, um, was he the greatest? I remember, it, I think it was Harry Carpenter, or whoever it was, said to George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, was he the greatest? And George Foreman looked for a second and went, nah, I got to tell you, he wasn't the greatest. And there was this horrible moment when you just went and he went but let me tell you something he was the best and i like that because what he was saying it's like the greatest of all time he's just saying he was the best and i love that about muhammad ali Muhammad Ali believed in himself but we all we can ever do is be the best version of ourselves we can be and i think to compare yourself to other people and i see this in business a lot people say i want to be like steve jobs i want to be tough like uh, lee iacocca i i said what well, uh, oscar wilde famously said be yourself everyone else is taken and you know i try and get people to think of that be be the best version of you you can be don't try and be other and i see it on i see people trying to 
perform like somebody else. And it just always feels like a bad imitation or it doesn't feel authentic. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because people give you aspiration. You know, you look at others or I should say aspiration, maybe inspiration. You know, you go, <laughs> wow, I could be more of that. But it is interesting about, um, but being more of that doesn't then mean that that's the identity you're trying to inhabit. And I think that's pretty key. If, if that's what I'm hearing you say. There. Well, you know what, but, what, yes. The, 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 my favorite example is Cary Grant. Remember the actor Cary Grant? He was this you know, amazingly charming man. And they said to him, how did you develop all these positive personality traits? You're always smiling. You've always got a good word. You're very polite. You're very fun. He said, whenever I met someone who had a quality that I really admired, I just decided to try and embrace that quality within myself. Hmm. Not to copy this person, but if I see someone who's very positive, and I go, I like being around that person. Why is it? I'm going to try and be a bit positive or being helpful yes. or being compassionate. So I think that's my advice to anyone. Look hmm. at qualities you admire and embrace them and adapt them into your own being, but don't try and be 100% uh, facsimile of that. Don't try and be that person. And I think when I, when I think about leadership, sometimes people try and become the caricature of a definition as opposed to, as you quite rightly said there, I think, you know, what's your version of, of that? And, you know, what's your style? What, how are you going to inhabit that space? And um, that's, I think, often the hard work. It's not reading the book or going on a course and being shown or considering what good may look like. It's then, well, that's not the tricky bit. The tricky bit is turning that into a true version of yourself, you know, just, just copying good. That's when I think people feel that you're doing a process, even if it's technically a good one, the integrity might, not that you're not being a true, but the, the, the there's a, a lack of trust maybe in it because it's, I don't think it's really you, even if it's good. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges to, to get people to be um, just comfortable with the, the experience that they bring. I tell you the other thing I find with leadership as, a, as an area of interest. When I get asked to speak at conferences over the years, a very popular topic is a leadership conference. And I remember speaking once to um, IBM, and it was in 2001 or 2002, and it was in America. And they had this professor from Stanford who was a professor of leadership. So we got up to give this talk on leadership. And he said, um, since 1948, every 18 months, there's a new fad. You know, we've talked about situational leadership, dynamic leadership, charismatic leadership. And uh, so he gave this very good presentation. And at the end of this presentation, everyone in the room was more confused than before he'd started because they go, what is leadership? And I was asked to speak after him on leadership, sort of more informally. <clears throat> and I said, here's my take. If, you, if any of you in this room are, have been managers and you're now been told by your bosses or your superiors that you have a leadership role, I guarantee you're scratching your head and says, what, are the, what does a leader look like? And it's, I said, it's ephemeral. I, what, what? I said, so let me give you two quick examples. When you were at school, did you have a favorite teacher? And the people would say, yeah. I said, well, let me ask you five questions about this favorite teacher. Question one, was the teacher passionate and enthusiastic about the subject they taught? Did they bring it to life? And the audience went, yeah. <clears throat> I said, if you answered a question correctly, did they say, well done? Yeah. If you got a question wrong, were they empathetic and helpful? Yeah. Did you like them? Yeah. Did they like you? Uh, yeah, I think so. Okay, so the answer is yes, 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 yes. If that teacher came into the classroom and said, tomorrow, kids, bring some flip-flops, a grass skirt, a plastic policeman's helmet, we're going to climb Ben Nevis in the winter snow. You'd have run home. He said, mama needs some flip-flops, a grass skirt, and a policeman's helmet. And the mother would say, why? He said, because I'm climbing Ben Nevis. And they go, but it's winter time. He goes, no, it's okay. Miss Thompson's taking us. See, the thing is, you would follow Miss Thompson anywhere because you trusted her mm. and you trust her because you believed in her and she gave you confidence. So I said to the people in the audience, all you need to do is to be that favorite teacher to the people who report into you. 
Yeah. The second thing, when you're at primary school, do you remember at playtime, there'd be a wee game of football in the playground? And people go, yeah. Or be, if the girls be skipping ropes or handball or something, they go, yeah, that's it. It was always the same people that people we gravitated towards to organize the football. It was always the same girls that organized the skipping. I said, these people had a natural ability to gather people around them. I said, and that's what I call natural leadership. But the other form of leadership, like the favorite teacher, you can acquire those skills. Mm. But as for doing, and they do leadership courses, I'm sure you must know a lot more about this than I do. But I try and always keep leadership as simple as I can because it can become quite a, a maze of opinions. I, uh, I've discovered, you know, trying to find my, not my niche, but my place and, you know, my, my voice in this space, because, you know, just like being a, a speaker, you know, there's, there's lots of people that want to be a speaker, right? And everybody mm. wants to be a coach. Every, everybody wants a podcast now, you know, there's all these. <laughs> so to find your voice is, um, is, is quite key. But I do find that there are a lot of people in this development space that um, rely on the academia to try and validate a point as opposed to maybe just telling a story <laughs> that people can associate with and, and, and understand. And I find that to be very, um, what I actually find interesting is that when I'm talking to people lower down the hierarchy of a business, they often want to validate upwards that what those people are going to learn is academic and it gets a certificate or it's a this or a that but whenever i talk to people who are at the level that i'm actually going to work they primarily don't really care about any of that they just say no. I, I just want it simple i just want it to make sense but everybody else to try and validate that we wouldn't ask them to do it unless it was worthwhile they want to make it into something bigger than it is but the people that actually are going to go on it they just want a story and they just want something that they can wrap their head around to help them tomorrow you know. Yeah, no, I, I look. They want, they want, they want a band-aid. They want a quick fix, and I, I get that. The other thing I get, I get driven crazy about. When I was um, starting my business, they said we want a team building course. We want to talk about team building, and so they say, oh, okay, well, we're having a team building day. Do you want to come along, Robin, and talk afterwards? So I'd go along, and they'd be in a field with planks and drums, bits of rope, kettles, and doing these things, and or they'd go to a little place and do a twenty-foot abseil. And they'd turn to me and say, well, that's the chief executive and the, the, the young girl is the young receptionist and they're working as a team. And I went, no, really, that's good. And I, I was very cynical. I mean, it was my Scottish nature. But it, it wasn't team building at all because tomorrow she'll still be in the reception. He'll still be in the head office and he's not going to listen to what she has to say. And I always said, look, teams are built through hardship. If you look back in your life, Guy, it's sort of the, some of the most... Uh, moments which are embedded in your sort of psyche there'll be times of overcoming hardship climbing a mountain in the winter with a pal getting into a punch-up with some strangers in a situation where you're with you, you and your friends and you're blooded and you're bonded through that so i say to companies if you want to build a team go through hard times together and stand by each other look out for each other when i talk to you ask me what people i admire when I started my company, I got a couple of instructors part-time, they're all ex-military, and they've been in the parachute regiment, Marines and things like that. And when they talked about going into combat, they always said, you don't fight for your queen and country. It's for each other. It's your brothers in arms. That's who you're, you're loyal to. And I think in organizations, you don't have that loyalty. So a team building day doesn't build loyalty. It's just a box ticked in the HR hierarchy. As our leadership courses, I look, there's, there's university courses doing diplomas and leadership that companies, organizations can send people on. That's a business. I mean, that's being run as a business. The universe is charging a fixed amount of money to teach leadership. At the end of it, are these people better leaders? I don't know because I don't follow through on it, but I really do believe that, you know, a lot of the corporate training is exactly what you just said, highly um, justified through academia. And I listen, I've been in conferences when academics have said to me, well, what qualifications do you have? And I said, um, I, I try to avoid saying school of hard knocks, university of life with, with first class honors. I said, well, you know, I have a fascination with this topic for 20 years, I've self-educated. They said, but you don't have any formal qualifications. I said, no, I don't. I said, Hessen Blumenthal and I share that in common. He's a self-taught chef. Uh, he's got three Michelin stars, but he doesn't have any qualifications. So 
based on that, you probably wouldn't want yeah, cases. Yeah, tell me, uh, you know, ask, the, ask the Beatles what their certificates of, uh, you know, were or, or whatever that might be. And as you say, most most people, photographers, are anything. Well, ask Mark Zuckerberg for his university degree. Ask yeah. Bill Gates for his university degree. It's yeah. And it, to me, when, once you start hiding behind that, it's like... Um, now, finally, the university offered me a chance to do a PhD, and I said, no. I'm, I wrote a um, LinkedIn article which had great traction some years ago, and it was called The Executive Coaching Farce. And the my point is, as an executive coach, what I was trying to say was that if you have an executive coaching qualification and it's helped you get better, tick you know, it doesn't matter what it is that you've done, but if doing that course has helped you become better at what you're doing, fantastic. But having that certification doesn't mean you're any better. No, no. I, I, and well, so the balance, well. it's not in the validity. The, the certificate per se isn't, I don't think, valid as a indicator of your competence or your craft or your wisdom. And so I... But also, I would say, of course, if you have no coaching qualification, maybe you should go and get one because you're not that good at it. But for other people, no, not having a coaching qualification, but I know that person to be absolutely top flight. So I think all of these things are leadership courses, keynote speakers, you know, what value do they bring? Well, some of them, none at all all the way to some of them can cause an epiphany if it's the right thing at the right time and it's the right reason for having it there. And I think that's, yeah, the, I think that's, that's the wisdom good. of choice, I think. It is. It is wisdom of choice. And I think the, another thing too, if you're traveling and you go to a small town, you'd say, where's a good place to eat? You know, if I, if and as you've done, you do mixed martial arts, when you've been learning, you, you've probably said, where's a good gym to train or who's a good instructor yeah, yeah yeah and i get amazed when i go online and you look at these self-defense courses people are selling you know I, I think they're putting people's lives at risk i can't even talk about it i literally start to get tourette's no, over that, I mean, you know, <laughs> over that topic <laughs> my favorite one is the i've seen i've seen people advertising you can be a bodyguard and travel the world and you know and you, you get these fantasists and they'll take their money and they'll yeah. give them a certificate saying you're now a bodyguard and this yeah. poor fellow's going to go up and Oh, yeah. No. no, I think that is, um, I think that's really key that, that, that reality of, um, for me in the world that I operate, I'm sure it's the same for you. You know, do you have a keynote speaking qualification? No, what I have is you can bring any of the last 10 places I've, I've spoken at and, and just ask them the impact that I had. And versus, you know, I might say, listen, these are the people I've coached CEO level for the last year, give any of them a call. Do you have any coaching qualifications? And I almost now say, if I do or I don't, I'm not going to tell you. That's not the point. <laughs> if you want, if you want to know, just ask. Ask, right? No, I'm, I'm very, I'm very with you there. I mean, I think, and there's the, the thing with the qualifications is I, I met someone recently who just spent twelve thousand pounds on doing a sort of a coaching, a coaching course, and I said, and how many clients? And they said, well, that's, I can't, I can't really. You know, that's the hard thing. I said, you'd better off next time spend £12,000 on internet marketing strategy. Yes. And then you can, you can learn to be a coach as you go along. Um, but I said, yeah. so it's, it's hard. But I, I, I you know, it's, it's what I'm seeing in business that over the years when you give a motivational speech, they said, we need a motivational speech. Now they want much more specific stuff. Clients are saying we want stuff on resilience, overcoming adversity. We want, um, and I say, nothing has changed. Can I promise you, you know, People say to me, oh, the world, the market, it hasn't changed at all. It hasn't. I mean, all that's happened is things happen faster. The lead time is shorter. And the financial constraints are probably greater. But it's, you know, I think in the 20th century, there were four major recessions, five major recessions. You know, nothing changes dramatically. And um, so companies come up to me and they'll say, you know, we're, um, you know, we want to, there's a, wonderful speaker called Jeff Birch. He told a, a story once I thought was very telling. He said that he was hired to speak at a conference and the, he said to the chief executive in the briefing call, what do you want me to do? And the guy said, I, I want you to empower the audience. Oh. And I said, okay. 
And he said, empowerment's a big thing. He said, and Jeff said, it is a big thing. He said, so I want you to empower the audience. And Jeff said, that's fine, but empower them to do what? And the, the chief executive didn't expect this question. He said, well, you know, I want them to be empowered to be empowered. And he said, but to do what? And the, the chief executive said, to do what I tell them. I get a little bit um, taken up by business fads. I just think nothing changes. I'm sure if you look at martial arts or you look at golf or skydiving, the principles never change. I do find this fascinating. And, you know, I think from if you look back at Marcus Aurelius saying something, Cicero saying something, whatever it might be, and a lot of it, I would say, you know, most of this stuff's already been said. You know, in one way or form, it's not been said in this context. But I have a, um, a good, a good friend, colleague who's who's a musician, and he said, "You know, guy, there are no new notes," and that really made me stop. And he went, "Now, it's the order of things; it's the offering of the thing, but there's no new notes." And I thought, when was the last time I read anything in leadership that was a fundamental new paradigm? No. But maybe the offering of it, the language around it, the packaging made it not maybe more palatable, but it allowed me to then engage with it. So for me, it's the presentation of it. But the the truths are back to your point, you know, about the teacher. You know, guess what? It's it's behavioral. And if it's behavioral, then it's human. And unless humans have done something fundamentally different in the last few hundred years that I've missed, it's inherently true. <laughs> And I think that's what I'm hearing, you know, what you say there. Yeah, well, there's a lot of quotation by the um, French philosopher who said, truth exists, but only falsehood has to be invented. And <clears throat> the principles of, of war from Lao Tse and, you know, nothing, I don't, I, so I'm, I use the, the analogy I occasionally give to business people. I say 30 years ago in any city in Britain, you could walk to an Italian cafe and buy a latte or a cappuccino. Cappuccino and a little white cup, saucer, frothy, lovely. I said, now you can walk into a Starbucks and you don't ask for, you, you don't say, I'm going for a coffee, you say, I'm going for a Starbucks. Even if you're going to a Costa or a Cafe Nero, you say, let's go for a Starbucks. I said, they didn't invent cappuccino. They didn't invent lattes. They didn't invent coffee. Mm. What they did is they reinvented the experience. And I said, in our line of business, that's what we do, we should be looking to do, to try and reinvent the learning experience, reinvent the um, presentation experience. But there is nothing new really under the sun. And that's when I, whenever I see in the internet or on LinkedIn, someone saying new technique, new, a new way, this is a new, wholly original ego, you know, and I have to, I can't mock them because I did it myself when I started my training going, Ooh. You know. Well, you're making me laugh because, you know, as I mentioned before, I've done martial arts all my life and people go new. And I go, well, what, you're going to hit them differently? You know, it's, you know, there's only so many, your fist only rotates so much unless you've invented a new way or you're going to kick them differently. No, there's no, you haven't, you haven't created anything new. So I do, I'm very suspicious of that and i think also but here's the challenge this is the challenge the, yeah. the audience wants something new well the client the customer says no I've, we've done coaching before we want something new and, you go what do you and, think well, coach, talking to people not at a senior level but at the, the, maybe that kind of less senior level and they go what have you got that's new and i and i you know what i say next either gets me some business or it doesn't and i go well are they doing what's not new right yet well, that's a good line. That's a good answer. That's you know, a very good answer. Because if they're having the conversations that need to be had and they're coaching people in a timely manner and they're holding each other to account and having transparent conversations, and of course I listen. Now, if they're doing all of that, let's go for something new. But well, I'm pretty well betting that you want to do something new to try and make them do that, right? <laughs> and I mean, the I basics are the same. Well, I mean, as I've said to... Um, there's not a diet in the world that doesn't work. There's not an exercise program in the world that doesn't work. What's but up? you want to do one because... Yeah. Why? Yeah. Well, because you've tried all the rest and they're not working for you. So it's a motivation issue. It's not a diet issue. 
<laughs> I, I like that, I, that quotation by Thomas Edison. Most most people miss opportunity when it appears because it's stressed and overalls and looks like hard work. Yeah. And that's the truth. You know, most people want this easy way to leadership, this easy way to powerful teams, this easy way. You look at the great teams of the world in sport is always the most commonly used ones. But there's some organizational teams and they've got this incredible will to win, a will to win. And it's just um, unbelievable. So I think what we've been able to say is that, you know, the one thing I'm hearing between the two of us is, you know, let's not call a spade a terrain inverter, maybe, you know, as in keeping it simple, understanding the truth of what it is that we're really talking about. And we don't have to, and, and dressing it up actually might make it less accessible because maybe then you're not talking about the real things. And that's, that's something I hear. So when somebody approaches you, Robin, and they, you know, we've, we've all maybe got things we can do, but then there's our sweet spot, that stuff that says, look, that's, you know, I can help with A, B, C, and D, but if you really want me at my best, the thing that I probably just can't get wrong is this. What is it that I would come to you for? I would say that if people came to me and they said, what does you do best? I think it is getting people to see themselves changing their whole self-image, be it at a team, individual or organizational level, to change self-perception, to remove limiting beliefs. The one thing if you, I can do it with a one-to-one, I can do it with a group of 20 to 500 people to get them to question. I take people back to a time in their life. I ask a very simple question. I say, who are the most confident people in the world? An audience will go brain surgeons, bomb disposal engineers, people that test parachutes. I go, no, statistically, four-year-old children. Four-year-old children have the highest levels of confidence. After four, it goes down. And I said, so by the age of four, you had all the tools you needed in your toolbox to be way more successful than you believe you currently are. Hmm. So that's where I think I can, as I've always felt the place where I'm most comfortable is getting people to reevaluate where they are and believing in what their self-image, which is very, I mean, it goes back to Muhammad Ali. <clears throat> Muhammad Ali never said, I'm the best. He said, I'm the greatest. He, his self-talk was always, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. So I, I think for me, you know, if you want a leadership person or team builders, great people out there. But if you wanted someone that's going to sort of help sort of re-imagine um, the potential, then that's where I would be most at home. So I've got a couple of questions that I've started to ask uh, certain people now because I think they've, 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 got, they've got it within them to, to answer it. And one of them is, you know, and you can, you can bend the question to, to suit your need there, but the the best bit of advice you ever got the thing that you look back on and say thank billio that that person said that to me or maybe it was the best maybe it was the most important thing you saw or observed or you know could have been that was said to you there's two things one was a bit of advice i got was uh, learn from your failures don't identify with them you know you're going to fail learn from it but don't identify with it don't go oh i'm a loser i'm a failure or just go, okay, why did that happen? Don't embody it. Which was, and um, the, the other one I got, I got and it, it's, 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 it's almost cliched, it was Winston Churchill's last ever speech to his school in Harrow when he was in his late 80s. He walked up to the podium and said, never, never give in, never, never, never give up. You know, and I do think, I believe in the power of persistence. You know, there's a fellow in America I knew who was trying to be a screenwriter and, um, I'd been living in America, working as a comedian in my twenties, and uh, I came back and <clears throat> my career started to take off through television. And I went back, and he was living very, you know, he was living broke. He was life, life for him was difficult. I said to him one day, I said, Peter, you're 33, you're almost living in your car. What happens if you don't make it? And he said, Well, if I don't make it, I'll never know I didn't make it. So yeah. I said, I'll never know I didn't make it. He said, Because I'm going to die trying. And I, I, you know, I, I kind of think that's a lovely app. But I did, I, you know, to be fair to me, he sold a script for $300,000. But, uh, you know, 10 years later, he, he blew all that money and he's kind of back to where he was because it's just how he kind of, his DNA. As you, do. As you do. You had it for a moment. Okay, he's eternally optimistic. Even now, he'll still go, ah, oh, I'm, you know, Mr. Very content, really full of positive belief things are going to go well. 
And what's that bit of advice that you're maybe most proud of that you've given, that you think back and you go, I was asked or I saw and I offered or I, re- I, re- I was requested and I gave and I said that thing. And on reflection, that was one of the better things I've offered to somebody. I think the, the thing that I've said, uh, the first time I said it, it uh, just really helped this person immensely. And I've said it many times since and I've written about it. And it's this, the most important single relationship you're ever going to have in your life. And the person who's going to have the single most impact in your life is, is not your husband or wife, your mom or your dad or your kids. It's yourself. So the advice I gave, I believe, that's been most helpful to people is be kind to yourself. Because I think people aren't kind to themselves. People have very negative conversations. They're hard on themselves. So they're jealous of other people. And I said, look, just be kind to yourself. So you know, things in life are going to go wrong. You're going to do things that you wish you hadn't done. You're going to make mistakes. So if it was, if you were talking to the four-year-old you, what would you say if they made a mistake? You'd be kind to them. So for me, I always tell people, you know, be, be kind to yourself. And I, the other thing, I, the other bit of advice I've given people, having been twice in my life in, in a hospital with potentially fatal outcomes, I said, at the end of your life, you will not regret your failures, mm. you'll regret your regrets. And mm. so there's anything in life you want to do in business, start your own business, whatever it is, if you want to leave, leave, but do not hold back because you're afraid of failure. Fear of failure as you get older is fear of rejection, fear of ridicule, fear becomes a dominant force. I said, look, the truth is we're all going to die. You don't want to be in your deathbed age 95 going, God, I wish I'd started my business. I wish, I said, it is better to do something and fail than to do nothing and succeed. Mm. So those are the two bits of advice. Be kind to yourself and live a life where you, with no regrets. So your energy right now, I mean, COVID obviously is a thing that um, when when it first hit, I was almost not talking about it because I, th- I said, I thought it'll be over in a minute. And then and then obviously it went on longer than, than I thought. And now we almost seem to be coming out of it again, hopefully with a vaccine on the horizon. So uh, hopefully th- there is a, uh, you know, I don't think we'll be the same as before, but a level of normality is coming into play. So um, what, what are your, what's your energy over the next 12 months, two years? Do you have a sense of it's, it's getting back to a semblance of what was, or no, I've got a new, a new vision of the next couple of years. I practically a new vision. I came to the realization that, um, you know, the conference industry such as we know it is never going to return to the way it was. So these days of the five, 10,000 people conferences, is gone. We'll go back to the 150, 200 people conferences, but also the organizers are going to see the amount of money they save by not having to fly people and drive people and put up hotels. So the virtual conference world is now going to probably take off. And that's not what I'm interested in. Well, I mean, of course, I work there, but my main interest now is uh, online training and development. So I'm creating um, programs which are not corporate, they're for the sort of wider audiences. My number one realization is when I have delivered training to companies, it's always well received, but I don't think it makes a real difference. You know, I'm sure most trainers would say, well, mine makes a big difference, but and if it, it does, fantastic. I'm never sure. It's the Chinese meal thing. We enjoy it when we're having it, but later on it kind of it goes away quickly. What I came to realize is that the real change in our life takes place when we are part of a group and we're supported. You learn to walk by being supported. You learn to talk and dress yourself so being constantly supported. I don't know if when you were doing martial arts, you had a mentor or someone that said, come on, guy, come on, you can do it, you can do it. And your progress is quickly. I've created an online program now called The 42 Days. I believe in 42 days, it's a long enough period to form new habits and break bad habits into the subconscious habits of failure. So my whole focus now is knowledge dissemination online as well as if I'm asked to speak publicly I would do but I'm not expecting to get a lot of for the next year at least to get a lot of uptake in that I don't think it's going to come back Hmm. so if people wanted to connect with you Robin what's the best way to do that to a just they might want to say hello to they just want to keep tabs on you uh, in the nicest possible way or they might want to engage with future um, products and services what's the best way of somebody doing that well, I, the two, 
my website that used to be seegerinternational.com, but I've, I've scaled that down. It's robinseeger.com. So if you go to robinseeger.com or just type into Google Robin Seeger, you'll find a way to find me. Uh, I'm in LinkedIn. I'm in, I think, Facebook, um, Instagram. But I, yeah, I mean, I, if people want to contact me, it shouldn't be too hard. Well, I'll put some. I'll put a connection to you in the description as as well. So listen, I'm just always alert to time because you know when I get 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 into a conversation with somebody such as yourself, Robin, I'm just and I've said this a lot recently with the some high caliber people I've been speaking to. I suddenly realised that you know I think I can talk to the point where you may go. You know what, guy. I've actually got to go and live my life now. So nice to have met you. I've got another Zoom call uh, in about 20 minutes. So well, there you go, you see. So that's our <laughs> limiter. That's our limiter there. But I just want to yeah, say this has been a great insight for me. I had a sense of you um, from a distance and just hearing you talk and the manner of you, that has brought, I think, the essence of you to life uh, for me personally. So I'm sure it will do for, uh, for others. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you. It's very kind of you. And I apologize for me going in and out of sunlight all the time. I'm, I'm up in Scotland and I'm in quarantine at the moment, so I can't get into an office space. So I, uh, hence the, hence the strange background noise and the strange, uh, my friend whose house I'm staying in walking in during our presentation to deliver. And of course, what's hilarious is a year ago, we'd have gone, Oh my gosh, we've got to redo the whole thing. Now we just go, yeah, whatever. Nobody cares. <laughs> Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. So uh, I'm just gonna... I've, I've got a question for you, which has nothing to do. You can edit this out. Uh, Nabi Nurmagomedov, what do you think? Ah, okay. Uh, I think he's an exceptional talent. Do you think he'd beat McGregor again? Yes, I think he'd beat him every single time he got in with him. Uh, I think yeah. whereas McGregor can, and, can very often come back a second time and reassess and can um, do well against somebody with his cardio is better. His a lifetime of ground fighting that, whereas I think you can learn to box and you can learn to move over a few years, you can catch up. But when you've been wrestling bears since you were a child, quite literally, you don't, you can't catch up on that one. Uh, not no, I got Conor McGregor's. By the way, I, I think he's an incredible showman. Oh. I think he's not a good sport. I think he's not a good role model. Um, I think he's very smart business. Um, I mean, the fight against Mayweather, Mayweather probably could have knocked him out in the first round. I'm pretty sure he could have done. But you know, there was there was he, he took a sport there. where these guys are not paid a lot of money compared to boxers. So when you're in the MMA game, for McGregor, even if you were top card, you had to be top for a long time to make real money. So yeah. he was that first, even though in the sports world of MMA, McGregor was, sorry, lots of other MMA people were incredibly well known. McGregor became a household name to people that didn't even know what it was. So he broke that mold. And of course he's got skills. He beat seven daylights out of me any time anytime you like. But no, against that kind of level, I think everybody has a nemesis, and I think that's his nemesis. That's the man he'll probably never beat, and uh, and we've all got one. You know, we've all got. I mean, one. There was um, McGregor in the fame, the fight. I, I, it was extraordinary. And at, part, at some point, he says to Nurmagomedov, "It's just business." He was trying to say to him, well, "I'm just trying to sell the fight." But I think there was more to it than that. He was very insulting to us. There comes a point. There's a line you don't cross. He crossed the line. He's got a fight in January. Uh, who knows? He's a big box office draw. When you're having somebody, when somebody's got the mount and they're literally pummeling your face in, and you end up saying, "That's the equivalent of saying I'm really sorry." Yeah. <laughs> would you please not really damage me that much? It was just, it was just business. I mean, that's yeah. the professional's way of going. I made a real tactical error here because. I thought I'd probably win. Turns out I'm not. So would you not kill me? My only fear was McGregor was going to land a left. You know, he's got a very he's got a knockout punch. Punch's chance, right? Every I mean, listen, he's skilled. And as you say, it doesn't, you know, you can you just takes the one punch. But uh the the level of skill he was fight he was matched up against, the level of drive and um, and also, I think the thing is, when you get the money and the get, you get the lifestyle, and that's why you have to say to somebody like Mayweather, to stay that long in a position where with that level of money, 
and they still they people say, yeah, but he still trains harder than anybody else. He still keeps himself constantly fit. So it's a very mm-hmm. interesting character that can particularly come from those demographics, get yeah. incredibly wealthy, and then have the same hunger. It's like Rocky and Mr. T, right? Yeah. You know, Rocky one got the lifestyle and you know and and these trainers name fails me now in the films sees yeah. mr t being hungry and going rocky you've got to start training you've got to realize this guy's hungry right yeah, you know? yeah i remember final question then i better go because i've got this thing um anthony joshua and tyson fury well do you know i think tyson fury is the inherently skilled he has an innate boxing skill I think Joshua is a specimen. I mean, holy schmoly. You know, yeah. if you ever you were going to look up, you know, what a Greek Adonis should look like, doink, there he is. I think Tyson Fury will outbox him. Outbox him. And it's not that Anthony Joshua doesn't have the will or doesn't try and, and all that, but I think Tyson Fury is a more skilled boxer. And if he puts the effort in and matches the effort – he then ends up same amount of effort, but with more skill. So I think he's going to win. One thing I must say, I haven't, I haven't shown the clip. I wouldn't show it, but I think it's a great clip. When Deontay Wilder hits the knockout punch on Tyson Fury and he goes down and he's out. Yeah. I mean, he's close to being, un, he wasn't out-out, but he was. Yeah. Oh, and you could just see him going, rebooting it up again. It's Tyson Fury's dad who I can only imagine when he was 19, what he was like, you know, Tyson Fury comes from a, a, a group of people that you get back up, son, you know, yeah. and you know, it doesn't matter what they do to you. You get back up. He's been right. He back in his limbic system, hot wide yeah. into his cortex is his dad going, get up. And, yeah. you, know, yeah, and, no, you know, and up he got, you know, so <laughs> right. sir. And I, I really hope Nurmagomedov doesn't come out of retirement. I hope he doesn't go for one more fight. I, I would hate to, hate to see him lose. Yeah, I think uh, stopping at the top of your game cements the reputation. Now, I'm going to press stop, but hold on for one second just to make sure it all does what it's supposed to do. That's it. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share so others get to hear about us and subscribe so you keep up to date on new episodes. Also visit livingbrave.com if you want to connect with me and find out more about executive coaching, team effectiveness and changing culture. Oh, and of course you can buy my book, Living Brave Leadership on Amazon. So on that note, see you soon.